Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. You might have seen in the bulletin that says the sermon series is Philippians, and yet here we are in Acts. That's because here is the birth of the church in Philippi, here in Acts. I'm actually going to read a little bit before what is in your bulletin there. I'm going to read Acts 16, 6 through verse 40. Acts 16, 6 through verse 40. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him humbly in prayer, asking for his help. Oh God, this is a, a great text of Scripture. We are so thankful for this, your word, your inspired, infallible word, your authoritative word. This word here that we see will create your church in this little place, Philippi. What a beautiful testimony of your power. Lord, help us to see these things. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Acts 16, 6 through 40. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her her, her her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out the very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the, prisoner doors, the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we just ended two Sundays ago our Advent series, Christ in the Writings. You might remember that. And that was, tw- that was uh, December 24th, morning and evening. And then on December 31st, we had a standalone message, Psalm 107, let the redeemed say so. We, we know that our Redeemer lives, glory, hallelujah, and so let the redeemed say so. And we looked at how the redeemed praise God through Psalm 107. Now, one of the truths in the Advent series of Christ in our writings, we noticed in these passages, was the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit for the Messiah's ministry. Another truth was that the Son of God came to earth with a humble beginning. Still another was that the Messiah came to save a people, but he also came to sanctify that people, set them apart, to grow them in holiness. As the Christ went, so goes his bride, the church. And we see that in our new series in 2024. We begin in the morning with Philippians. We begin with this passage here, and then later on, the letter to the Philippians. This speaks of the birth and the growth of a people devoted to God. And tonight, we begin a new series in the evening, a short series in the prophetic book of Nahum. In Nahum, we will tremble at the unavoidable destruction of an unrepentant people set on destroying God's devoted people. And after these three messages through Nahum, we will then return to Nehemiah and spend most of 2024 in the evening in that book. Now, I say return because, of course, you all remember that on Christmas Eve in the morning, I preached Nehemiah chapter 1. Of course, you remember that, right? The book of Nehemiah, we remember, is about the regathering of God's people for the glory of God. So for most of 2024, our attention will be on these three books of the Bible, three books that all address the redeemed of the Lord, rejoicing in the end of their enemies and rejoicing in the start and the growth of their own households for holy worship and godly conduct. Now, what does, you'll have to forgive me for another sports analogy, sorry, 
What does a sports team that has come in dead last usually say of the upcoming season? They usually refer to it as a rebuilding year. They don't have high aspirations that they will be the champions, though perhaps some of them hope that fervently. They say, well, okay, we, we, we need to regroup. We need to reassess our own situation, our own personnel, our own gifts. We need to rebuild a little bit. I think that in some ways we might be able to view our own church now in 2024 in a period of rebuilding. Now, we know this, that sadly some have left the church. And so we are numerically smaller than we used to be. And there is much building to be done, much rebuilding to be done, numerically speaking. But of course, that's not the primary growth that I am talking about. Most importantly, there is need for more growth in worship of our God, in love for our Lord Jesus Christ, in holiness before him, and in love and unity with one another. And so we can lift our heads, dear saints, with hope, with joy, with love, because God has not left us. Before we come to the book of Philippians itself, we see in here, the book of Acts, how this church all began. I am tempted to explain everything in this text, but I will not. And it's a beautiful text to really speak about baptism, but I'll only have to give you short remarks about that. And as I was reading, I thought, there's another point that I want to add at the very end. We'll see if I do. It's a beautiful text of the, of the birth of a church, of the growth of the church. And as we reflect on this Little church, may the Spirit fill our hearts with hope, love, and joy. Here in this text, we see that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to build his church from nothing and for worshipful living. Notice it is the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to build his church from nothing and for worshipful living. The book of Philippians is one of our favorite books in the Bible. I trust it. It ranks among the, your favorite in the, book, in the Bible. It's a wonderful four-chapter book. It's clear, it's short, it's full of joy, despite the significant trials that Paul underwent, despite the conflict that Paul will speak to in Philippians. Some believe that Philippians doesn't have a lot of conflict because there's just so much joy, and they're all working harmoniously with one another. That is not true, as we'll see with Yodia and Syntyche. It calls for unity. It calls for humility. It sets forth the two natures of Jesus very clearly. The, the one person, Son of God, in two natures, who is truly human and truly divine. In that great passage in Philippians 2. And it shows how Jesus exemplifies humility as he humbles himself before the Father. In no uncertain terms, it shows us that we have life because of Christ's righteousness, not because of our righteousness. In fact, Paul will use in Philippians 3 strong language to refer to his own supposed righteousness, calling it trash or dung or scholars' debate, maybe even a stronger word for fecal matter. But have you noticed that the place that these future Christians would be in wasn't even on Paul's mind? Do you notice that in this text here? It wasn't even on Paul's mind. Paul loved to preach the gospel. 
That was his calling. That was his joy. That was his mission from Christ himself. But it wasn't in Paul's original plan to preach the gospel to this Roman colony in Philippi. He, as we see in this text, had other plans. Paul and his crew planned to go into Asia. But of course, as Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We can do all the planning we, we want, and we should. Yet the Lord orders our steps. Takes us on a wild ride at times, doesn't he? And in Acts 16, 6 through 7, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned. And this Holy Spirit is later viewed as the Spirit of Jesus. Do you notice that? Verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 7, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That in itself warrants a whole sermon. But here we have the Holy Spirit of Jesus, who forbids Paul and Silas to speak the word in Asia, but instead directs their steps over to Troas, where Paul was given a vision. A Macedonian man stood and urged Paul to come and help him and his people. It was clear to Paul that he was to go there and preach the gospel. Paul had no problems doing what all humans ought to be doing, which is making plans. But Paul had every problem with listening to his own plans without also hearing the Holy Spirit, without also being led by the Holy Spirit. He submitted all of his plans to his God. And so, led by the Holy Spirit, away from Asia, into Troas, and on to Philippi, he submitted. He felt the breeze of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit would blow new life into people, as he would blow new life into places, as he would even lead Paul from one place to the next. And because Paul followed the Spirit's lead, he would soon encounter a woman named Lydia. By the power of the Spirit, Lydia's heart would be opened to hear the gospel, and she believed the gospel. Because Paul followed the Spirit's lead, he would soon encounter the Philippian jailer. And by the power of the Spirit, even while the man drew his sword to kill himself, Jesus drew the sailor or the jailer by the sword of the Spirit, convicted him of his sin, and caused him to see the Son rightly. And none of this would have happened if the Apostle Paul was insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. And these Philippians had the same spirit that Paul had. And they all depended upon the Spirit for all of life and godliness. It is no wonder then, when Paul writes to the Philippians about a decade later, in Philippians 1.19, that it will be through their prayers, and it will be through the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, that he will be delivered. They knew this deliverance. They loved this deliverance. They rejoiced in God because of this deliverance. And dear saint, we have the same spirit as Paul and the Philippians. This spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have him indwelling us, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. Without the Holy Spirit of Jesus, no local church is born. That's a fact. Without the Holy Spirit of Jesus, no local church is born. No true church is born without the aid, without the ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, there wouldn't have been men, women, and children here 
at Cross Creek decades ago. People born from above, people born again, born to live unto God and worship the risen Christ. And it just so happened in God's providence this morning as I was going through some files in the grades three through five classroom closet, I came upon a small binder, it's like a pulpit binder, small white binder, and I was curious. I looked in it and flipping it. It was a, it was a pictorial directory of people. Some of you are right here. It was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Beautiful pictures of someone who's not a deacon, or who wasn't a deacon then, but who is now. Elders. Great pictures of people who, who are here now and some of whom are not. Perhaps many of whom are not. Real people. Decades ago, they came. Why did they come? Well, they had their own reasons why they came. But ultimately, they came because it was the Holy Spirit who drew them to this place. And without the Holy Spirit now, the steady stream of visitors, worshipers, and members would close up like that. Perhaps we think that we just have the right formula to draw people in, forgetting that it's actually the Holy Spirit who brings people to himself, who brings people together to one another. Have you considered your own journey to Cross Creek? Obviously, you consider your own journey to Christ, but Christ works through the church. Have you considered your own journey, how you even got here? Is it a marvel for you that you are sitting in these pews on this Lord's Day? Perhaps it is. How you got here might seem stranger than fiction. I remember the story of one woman who said that when she came here many years ago, she didn't want to keep coming here. She came, she saw, and she left and didn't want to return. It was too reformed. Not that she knew that language at the time, but when she reflected, it was too reformed. It was too Presbyterian. They, they talked about predestination, and that's a bad word, we're told. So she didn't want to keep coming. But she did keep coming because she submitted to her husband, and this was his church. And she grew to love Cross Creek. Presbyterians are an acquired taste. Presbyterian worship style is an acquired taste. You know this to be true. Sometimes it takes a while to say, yeah, I really enjoy that. It's like drinking black coffee. I don't think anybody from the very beginning, says, yes, this is incredible stuff. It's an acquired taste. It takes some getting used to. But then as you drink it, you say, yeah, I only drink black coffee. I'm part of the elect, right? None of this cream stuff. There's a lot of praying in Presbyterian worship. There's a lot of praying. Some prayers are shorter, some are longer. There's a lot of singing. And some songs are unfamiliar, and some are quite familiar. There's a guy who's talking at length. 20 minutes doesn't seem enough. Maybe sometimes 30 minutes doesn't seem enough. Maybe sometimes 40 minutes doesn't seem enough. He just keeps going on and on. And why does he keep going on and on? Because he sees the glory of Christ in the text, and he wants to share that with, with the people. And there are fewer stories in these Presbyterian sermons, they tend to be. There's a lot of reasons that it would take to acquire 
Presbyterian worship, God-glorifying worship. Maybe your route has been typical. It has been, say, through the military. It's PCS season, and here you are. You didn't think you'd be here. Perhaps you thought, maybe a few months before, you were heading to Alaska, and here you are in Fayetteville. And that seems strange to you. God works in mysterious ways. He brings his people to each other, to himself, in strange ways. I know that for the Mock family, our story about how God has led us here is a beautiful one. It's one full of heartache, leaving all that we knew and loved behind. One that the Lord used to bring us to new family. And I can't imagine not knowing you guys. Yes, we will see each other in heaven, but what a joy it is to see each other now. Take time to share your story. Yes, of course, your story, how, how the Holy Spirit drew you to Christ, but also take time to share your story or ask someone their story about how the Spirit led you here. That's often a question that we ask visitors. What, what brought you here? Was it just the website? What brought you here? I know that you will be mutually encouraged. Give praise to God for the Spirit's leading in your own life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit who led Paul, who saved Lydia, who changed the jailer, is even now working in this little church to build her, to grow her, to do and to will according to his good pleasure. We must have the Holy Spirit's leading. The Spirit, all those years ago, moved powerfully, but in small Incremental ways. When Paul and Silas arrived on the scene, there wasn't even a Jewish synagogue. Verse 13 reads, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. They didn't even know there would be a place of prayer, but that's what they thought. Maybe there's a place of prayer here by the riverside. You might recall that this was Paul's practice. He would first come to bring the gospel to a Jewish synagogue. And then he would talk to the Gentiles. But instead of checking in at the synagogue on the Sabbath, they went outside the gate. Why? Well, it says here, they went down by the river where there was some place of prayer. But they had to go outside the gate because there was no synagogue. In order for a city to have a synagogue there had to be at least 10 male Jews, 10 adult males, in order to form a quorum. But there wasn't even that small number of Jews. So thoroughly Gentile, so completely pagan, Philippi was. There was barely a presence. But there was water. And there were a few women who were devoted to the Lord God in exile. Such was the life for the Jewish exiles as they sang Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Such was the life of Ezekiel when he received his vision from the Lord in Ezekiel 1.1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. In the book of Acts here, here we have a few women gathering faithfully for prayer. Nothing glamorous. It's a few women, the riverside, coming together for prayer. Who knows how long they've been praying together? Weeks, months, years? 
A decade? Faithfully coming together, praying. Praying perhaps for the gospel. Praying for more people to, to come and, and to know the God that they serve. And Paul and Silas joined them and spend some time speaking to them. They shared with the women what they wanted to share with everyone, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of these women, Lydia, heard the message and by grace heard the call of the Spirit. She, a worshiper of God, came to the Spirit-wrought realization that Jesus is the Christ. Paul spoke to them what he did to, what he did to everyone, how all the Old Testament spoke of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the crucified and risen Lord. That was his message Time and again, place after place, that Jesus is crucified, he is the Messiah, he is risen. And so she hears, she's baptized, along with her whole household, and she urges them to stay at her house. This is a a businesswoman with servants and a home large enough to accommodate everyone. As Paul listened to the Macedonian man's urgent call, he does so here. He listens to Lydia's call to have him and others stay with him, stay with her. And it was likely in Lydia's house that the small church of Philippi first met for worship. Faithful prayer. Faithful studying the message of Scripture. It's a beautiful combination. Again, nothing glamorous. Just people coming together, praying, hearing the Word of God, studying the Word of God. And as we continue the story in Acts, we know Paul and Silas got themselves into quite a bit of a pickle, didn't they? They found themselves in trouble. Soon after the Riverside Prayer and Bible study, the power of the gospel was shown in even more powerful ways. Paul and Silas exorcised a divinizing demon from a slave girl. And it turns out that exorcisms are good for the soul, but bad for business. These Jewish men, Paul and Silas, these men of miracles were disturbing the pagan city. And and they were teaching things that no Romans wanted to hear and accept or practice. And so these men were beaten and thrown into prison. And so these men find themselves, and apparently the gospel finds itself bound in chains. But of course we know when Paul writes writes the letter to the Philippians that the gospel is not chained. The gospel is not bound. Nothing glamorous about these marks from Roman rods. Nothing glamorous about these marks, these blows from the blasphemous. It may not be glamorous, but it is surely glorious as God used their suffering for the spread of the name of Jesus, for the conversion of a jailer, and the baptisms of many more. Here we have a Jewish businesswoman, a slave and slanderous girl, and now a Roman guard. How diverse already this small church has begun to be. Oh, dear saints, let us never despise the day of small things, but instead rejoice in all humility. Your prayers, when they are humbly prayed, are heard by your Father in heaven. They are used by Jesus, your mediator, and they fly heavenward on the wings of the Holy Spirit. And so pray, dear saint. Pray in the morning, pray in the afternoon, pray in the evening. Pray alone, pray with your family, pray with your friend, here, there, everywhere. Pray. Be people of prayer. Your Bible study, dear saint when it is fervently pursued, is always for the glory of God and for your growth. So study, dear saint. Study in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. Make the time. We know that not everyone has 
all the time in the world to study as much as everyone wants. We know that we have jobs. We know that we have other responsibilities. We know we can't dig into the Greek if we know it as much as we want to. We can't read that book of theology or that book of history as much as we want to. But you have time. Just study the Word of God. Day after day. Make the time. God has given you the time. So study alone. Study with your family. Study with your friend. Study with a brother or sister in Christ. Here, there, everywhere. And you're suffering. When faithfully endured will surely avail much for the glory of God and for your growth. Entrust to your Savior your suffering in the morning. Entrust to your Savior your suffering in the afternoon. Entrust to your Savior your suffering in the evening. As long as with you, entrust it to the Lord. And whether you suffer alone, whether you suffer with your family or with your friend, here, out there, or anywhere, be assured that no drop of suffering is wasted by him who sweated drops of blood for you. And who knows? Who knows what the Lord is going to do with Cross Creek in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. He might even use the blood of Cross Creek martyrs as seed for his church. And we should be so honored and blessed. As some of us know, this, this church at one point was so small and didn't have enough elders that Cross Creek had to return to mission status. Now, in Presbyterianism, there's a distinction between a missionary church and a particular church. And really, the major distinction here is that a particular church has a permanent session. It has a group of elders, a plurality of elders, that govern that particular local church. So a missionary church has to borrow elders from other surrounding churches to oversee, to govern the affairs of the church. And our church, at one point, didn't have enough elders to, become, to, to stay as a particular church. And I'm told that we actually gave up our particular status and became a mission church that we might call Pastor Jim Braden. And one elder has often told other elders that the finances were so low one month that the pastor couldn't even be paid his full check until the following week's tithes and offerings. So there was much faith to be had. Times were tight, financially speaking. But the Lord slowly but surely blessed Cross Creek with more members and enough officers as well. Likewise, Christ has blessed his bride here in more ways by adding gospel-centered ministries, by adding Jesus-loving people, by regular, faithful, sacrificial, and generous giving over her many years. And so, dear saints, let us never despise the day of small things, but rejoice in Christ with all humility. And we don't lead the Holy Spirit when we consider holy living. It is the Holy Spirit who led the people to be saved. It is the Holy Spirit who leads the people to live holy lives even now. And he uses means of grace. Again, grades three through five, you studied that language, means of grace. This morning, you, talked, you learned about how God uses things to give his grace to you. And the sacrament is one of them. But he uses other means of grace. Look at verse 16. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And we saw earlier that there was this group of women gathered together for prayer by the river. God's means of grace for saving are not different from his means of grace for sanctifying his people. God doesn't use one set to get you into his kingdom and then another to help you to grow in that kingdom. 
It's the same means of grace. And here's one of them, praying. It was by prayer that God brought the church in Philippi to come into being. It was with prayer that Paul and Silas sought divine support at midnight when they were in prison. It was because of prayer that God caused an earthquake to shake loose the foundations and to break his children free from those chains of imprisonment. And it would be by prayer that God sustained this fledgling Philippian fellowship. Dear Saint, you are never too spiritual to neglect prayer. Don't ever think yourself too spiritual that you don't need to pray. God's people are a praying people. Do you want this church to grow? Do you want this church to thrive? Do you want more people in these pews? Of course you do. Do you want yourself to grow to be more like Jesus? Of course you do. Yes, you want this church to grow numerically, but most importantly, you want yourself and your family and one another to grow spiritually. Don't think you can do that without prayer. God's people are a praying people. Pray that God would crack open hardened hearts, that foolish foundations of sand would be replaced with Christ as a firm foundation, and for those in spiritual chains to be set free by the Son of Man, and pray for your own growth and godliness. Pray for the return of friends and family. Pray for the glory of God in all things. And don't be surprised when he answers these prayers. The prayer of the righteous avails much. And you are righteous in Christ. So pray. Pray big prayers. You have a, you have a big God. You have God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, as we confessed this morning. Pray. God's people are a praying people. We also see in verse 25 that they are a singing people. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a remarkable scene here. They are in shackles and yet in song. Who of us would break out in song when our lives could be taken away that very night? You feel like singing? Saints, you are never too spiritual to sing. And men, real men sing. So sing. You might not sing well. Welcome to the club. But sing. We don't know how well or poorly Paul and Silas sang, but they sang. God's people are a singing people. Sing those beloved hymns that you've grown up on. Sing even the new ones from the hymn supplement. Yes, they take some time getting used to. But sing them. And oh, let us not neglect those psalms, which were the songs that Paul and Silas were singing in prison. We don't know which ones, but we know that's what their body of song was. They were singing the psalms. And let us not object, but we don't have any instruments. We have to have instruments. No, instruments aid our singing worship. We don't have to have them. Do you think that Paul was on the piano and Silas' xylophone in prison? Paul and Silas did what Paul exhorted the Philippians and all of us to do in Ephesians 5. 
being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people are a praying people. God's people are a singing people. They prayed, they sang, and Paul preached the simple message of the gospel, verses 30 through 32. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. It's a simple question, isn't it? It's a life-changing question. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is not complicated. The answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and yours will be saved. God's people are a preached to people. I know sometimes we have that mentality. It's a common phrase, don't preach to me. You sound too preachy. Well, that gives preaching a bad name. Sounds like nagging. And sometimes we conduct our, our ways to people that way. God's people love the preached word. You are never too spiritual to hear preaching. You've never heard enough sermons until the Lord takes you home. The saint's heart cry is this, give me this food always, Lord Jesus. Give me your word always. Oh, dear saint, do not be satisfied with morning worship alone. When we have morning and evening, come to the evening. It's 2024, new year, new you, as they say. Come. Come and worship. Do you think you've maxed out in in worshiping God? Think you've maxed out in your own growth? Maxed out in your fellowship with one another? You've prayed too much, you've sung too much, you've, you've heard the word of God too much? Of course not. You don't believe that. Now we know that people are providentially hindered from one reason, for one reason or another. And there are reasons we can't attend or attend all of them. We know that. And I know, I know, probably better than a lot of people, what it's like to be a creature of habit. I have a way of doing things, and don't try to deviate me from that way. I have these long, ingrained traditions of how I conduct my life. And don't add something else. Yes, we are creatures of habit, but we're also creatures for holiness. We are creatures for the holy worship of God. That's why we, are, that's why we exist. Again, do you want the church to flourish? Do you want yourself to thrive in the name of Christ? Well, you need, then, the means of grace as often as they are provided. Avail yourself. The saint laments the famine of the word, and his mouth is ever open to receive it. And so, beloved, tend to the preached word with greater attention this year. We know that it isn't simply listening to sermons that makes you grow in Christlikeness. We know that it's the Holy Spirit's work in us to help us to make application of his word. And so let us have greater attention to the preached word. There's a reason there are many application points in any given sermon. Those are for all of us to consider in the the next week, to reflect on, make application of. They're not simply to say, well, that's a nice application point. I'm glad the pastor drew that out of that text. Duly noted. And like Lydia, the jailer and his household were all baptized. Verses 33 and 34. 
And he took them to the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Like good Presbyterians, they did not deny their households the covenant sign. One of, one of you got it. Like good Presbyterians. They were all given this sign and seal of Christ's blessing as Lord over them. The sign of being grounded in the church, a sign of new life, a sign of forgiveness, a sign of devotion to God. God's people are a baptized people. They are also a baptizing people. Now listen closely. You're never not spiritual enough to need another baptism. Sorry about the double negative. You're never not spiritual enough to need another baptism. In other words, one is enough. One baptism is enough. Now, this is not to heap any judgment on anyone who's been baptized more than once. We know that you can't undo that. That would be, I mean, how would that even work out anyways? But it is to say that one's enough because God's enough. Because baptism isn't really about what you do. It's about what God has done, which is what we saw with the baptism of Hartland John Fuller this morning. It's God's giving of his grace, of his bringing somebody into his covenant of grace, into his kingdom. Someone helpless, dependent on the sovereign grace of God. Baptism never depends on us, but always on God. These means, is praying, of singing, preaching, baptizing, these means, they seem like small means, don't they? They seem so insignificant, but they are hotly and often opposed. As we saw in this text, there was opposition time and again. And sometimes, maybe we do not put enough spiritual stock in these means as Satan does. Maybe we don't view them as powerful as they really are. Maybe we don't re realize that they are more powerful than we imagine. And that Satan has a better understanding of how powerful these really are. Better than we do. God's people are an opposed people. You are never too spiritual to avoid the adversary's attention. He seeks people to devour them. He has his demonic minions set upon us. Spiritual warfare. But let us always stick to God's means of opposing the opposition. Pray, sing, preach, baptize, repeat all day, every Lord's day. That's what God has given us. And the other point that I mentioned that I thought of as I was reading this text, which I won't belabor, but you see the very end of Acts is God's people vindicated. You see Paul saying, no, 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 you're not just going to get off easy like that. You're not just going to send us out secretly. There will be a vindication. God's people are a vindicated people. They are declared righteous in God's sight because of what Christ has done. But at the end of days, as we will see in final judgment, God's people are vindicated for having trusted in Jesus Christ, for having been on the right side, on the right team, for having been in Christ and not in Adam. We are a vindicated people. We aren't doing our own vindication. God is doing it for us. 
And so with our holy worship of God, we testify to one another and to the world that Jesus is Lord and he is the Savior of households. We pray to our Father in heaven through the one who intercedes for us. We sing to the singular Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We hear the word from the true minister, the herald who is righteousness. We baptize into the precious name of Jesus, being sprinkled clean by his blood and purified by the washing of his word. And we do all of this expecting opposition and even blessing his name when we are opposed. And so let us always major on these means of grace and not think ourselves wiser than God. Let us not overcomplicate things either, but instead leave the birth and the growth of the church in the hands of the good sower. He is a much better gardener than we've ever imagined. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful text that shows the power of the Holy Spirit in creating and growing the church in Philippi. We want that transformative power to continue in us as individuals, as families, as a church, that we might worship your name. In Christ we pray. Amen.